Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Well, their firstborn would have been spared. I take that personally because I'm a firstborn. And so if you're a firstborn, you might have thought through this too. I'm thinking if my folks are saying, hey, we're God's people, what's the big deal? I'd say, you guys go to bed. I'm gonna stay up late. And I'd be out there painting that. I'd be getting the lamb and, you know, slaying it and putting the blood on there. Why? I have a desire to live. In today's broadcast, we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, The Wedding, the Temple, and the Lamb. We are in chapter two of the Gospel of John, starting in verse 11, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. We will consider when Jesus cleansed the temple, proclaiming, Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So let's listen in. Well, John calls this back here in our passage, verse 11, the beginning of signs that I take to mean the first miracle that Jesus worked publicly on behalf of those who were needy. And it says the first sign, the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The word became flesh, we read it in John 1:14, and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. This is one way they saw the glory of God as he ministered miraculously to meet very practical needs. And those needs get more dramatic as we move forward. And many of you are well familiar with that. Well, seven signs that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. After this, we read verse 12, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I just want to say he went down to Capernaum, and now he goes up to Jerusalem. The odd thing is Capernaum is north, and Jerusalem is south. When I think up and down, I think north and south. That's just our orientation. I don't go to northern California to the beach at Newport. I go south. But, but to go down to anywhere was just leaving where you were and heading there. It's just a common phrase. But to go up to Jerusalem, well, you were always going up when you went to Jerusalem. Even if you were on a mountaintop higher than Jerusalem, you would have to descend cross that valley and then find your way up. It was up because it was the most important place on planet Earth in that day. This was the place where God placed his name and his temple and his priest and his feast and his festivals. This was the place where God met with people. And of course, we live in a different season and in a different time. We have a different orientation but I still love to go to Jerusalem and I still, there's, a, there's something there just that you're walking where Jesus walked and, and you're, you're, you're teaching or listening in places where Jesus taught. Well, anyway, it's Passover time. This will be a big issue for us because the Passover looks back to the lamb and a picture develops that goes 
all the way from Genesis to Exodus to John to Revelation. Or we'll go this direction since you're left to right. Genesis, Exodus, John to Revelation. And, well, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, it's important to know, and you should already be aware, that the, the, the most important part of the Passover, the original Passover, was that they were to take a lamb and slay the lamb and apply the blood. And then the firstborn in every household where the word was heard, believed, and obeyed would be spared when the death angel passed through Egypt. This Passover would lead to their freedom the very next day. So in the midst of all of that, every household that heard, and I'm certain every household had opportunity to hear, people either listened and obeyed or they listened and disregarded. If they disobeyed, if they failed to slay the lamb and apply the blood, well, their firstborn would have been spared. I take that personally because I'm a firstborn. And so if you're a firstborn, you might have thought through this too. I'm thinking if my folks are saying, hey, we're God's people, what's the big deal? I'd say, you guys go to bed. I'm gonna stay up late. And I'd be out there painting that. I'd be getting the lamb and, you know, slaying it and putting the blood on there. Why? I have a desire to live. But the point is, however it happened, somebody had to do it. And it was really dad's responsibility. If dad abdicated, well, then it would be good to take care of that yourself. Well, John 1, we read it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those lambs and the Passover was celebrated every year. Thousands and thousands of lambs were slain to look back and commemorate, to remember that God set his people free through a substitutionary sacrifice. Every firstborn was spared. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That fulfilled God's promise given to Isaac through Abe that he would provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. We looked at that and talked about that in Genesis 22. The Passover, again, death of an innocent substitutionary sacrifice led to life for those who were spared. That's Exodus 12. So Genesis 22 and then Exodus 12. I think I made mention of the fact that the first lamb slain would have been there in the garden in order to provide covering for Adam and Eve's sin. And so we see this picture developing, if you will. And uh, it's a glorious picture because it, it starts kind of vague and then clearer and then clearer and then ultimately behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Moving forward, there's something else, and, and that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll look at it when we get to the end of our time together. It's Revelation 19.7, in case you're not off, or something else happens. Uh, Revelation 19.7 and 9. But there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's important because we begin with the wedding here. 
And uh, then there's the temple and then there's the lamb. And then, well, we find again the, the marriage supper of the lamb, tying the wedding and the lamb together in a very beautiful and, and perfect way. Well, Jesus comes to the temple and it says, verse 14, he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. It's likely, I believe, that this started innocently and honestly as a service, as a ministry to those who were traveling, either Jews who lived apart and away from Jerusalem or Gentiles who were wanting to connect with the true and living God as, as Jerusalem was the place. And the Passover feast was the most important of all those feasts. So important to note that between 200,000 and 1 million people would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was one you didn't want to miss and one you weren't supposed to miss if you had any way to get there. So Jesus would have been there every year of his life growing up. John the Baptist, the other disciples, they would have all been there. They've seen it. They've heard it. Now they're beginning to see there's more to it. Well, travel was dangerous and difficult and a sacrifice was needed along with a coin that was acceptable to put in the temple treasury. The coin took care of the, uh, the temple itself and provided for needs there. The, the sacrifices took care of, well, it's supposed to be for your sin. And then, of course, it was uh, offered to God on your behalf. Now, no celebration more important. And when we see Jesus angry, we know he has something to be angry about. Now, when I was younger, I had anger issues. That's what they call them today. And, uh, and uh, I find Jesus had issues with anger now and then, but his were nothing like mine. And here's why. His anger was always righteous indignation. My anger was often birthed in immaturity and stupidity and unrighteousness sometimes justified, but nevertheless, mostly about how I was treated or not treated or it had to do with me. Jesus' anger always has to do with how other people are treating other people because, see, he, he loves every single person. And so he sees religious leaders taking advantage of people who've come to connect with him. This takes place, by the way, as he goes, as we're about to read, in the outer courts. And most of you are aware of this. Some of you are newer to it. But Jesus never actually entered the temple proper. Not the holy place and certainly not the holy of holies. Not the one on earth. It was modeled after the throne of God in heaven. Now he came from the holy of holies in heaven. He came from the one from which the earthly one was modeled, but he never entered the one on earth because only the Levites served in the temple. That means you had to be a descendant of Levi. And uh, only the sons of Aaron could go into the holy of holies. And so Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
We're actually looking at all this right now. We're in the last three chapters of Genesis and, and we're getting the picture as it just first is, is developing of these tribes and, and how it's going to play out for them in the future. But anyway, we read ahead in verse 15. When he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. I mentioned that they were at the temple for Passover regularly. They were also in the word of God regularly because they're remembering, hey, David in, in, um, in Psalm 69, a personal psalm and a messianic psalm that at one point says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So you can check that out. Highly recommended. Psalm 69, good reading as it'll give you some insight into David's suffering and also into some of Jesus' actions later. So the Jews answered verse 18 and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. You can't top a personal resurrection for proof of your person and of your calling and your ministry. So he reveals their part. You destroyed this temple, he's actually saying. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, it's common for people who aren't interested in the truth to mock it. Instead of pondering it, instead of dwelling on it, instead of digging into it, they just find something to mock within it. These guys also have a problem I see many have today, and that is they take things that are literal figuratively, and they take figurative things literally, and that causes all sorts of confusion. But anyway... Uh, he, it says, the Jews said, it's been 46 years we've been building this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, verse 22, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Some things we understand right away. Some things we take time. They're harder. They take longer. We have to press in and dig in to really find the meaning of what's being said. But I want to say most of what Jesus says that's important to everyone is right on the surface. A child hearing this could have understood it. There's only two options. There's the physical temple and there's the spiritual temple. That brings us to, well, a couple things I mentioned in the introduction, a couple passages from Revelation, and then we'll read these last uh, couple verses and pray together. Well, the wedding, the Passover lamb, and the temple, they all point us to our creator, savior, sustainer, king, Jesus. 
We'll be studying the Passover soon. We're just finishing the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. We'll be starting Exodus most likely next week or the week after. But I want you to consider that, that well, in Revelation, we, we have the lion of the tribe of Judah, made mention of that earlier. Jesus is identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in Revelation 5, 5, John is told to look. There's this scroll and no one found worthy to open it. And he says, well, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the seals. And he says he looked for the lion, but he saw a lamb. And the lamb looked as though it had been slain. So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation 5, 8, we read, he take the, took the scroll from the four living creatures. The 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, were the prayer, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Listen to this and make a mental note or jot it down. Revelation 5, uh, 9 through 10. We're going to need to know the words to this song because we're going to get to join in singing it someday. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign upon the earth. So here we have the wrath of God. Um, next, we have the wrath of God poured out from God's temple and thrown in heaven. Uh, it's chapter 16, no time to go into it today. Um, but verses 1 through 17, you should take a look at it because the wrath of God comes from the temple of God, from the throne of God in heaven. In Revelation 19.6, this takes us back to our introduction where we had a wedding, then we had the temple, and, and then, of course, we have the lamb. And it couples the wedding and the lamb. Revelation 19.6, as I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude is the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, write, Blessed are those who were called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Listen, in chapter 3, John 3, we'll look at it next week. Jesus is identified by John as the, um, the bridegroom. It's important because this marriage, it's the ultimate celebration the, the, the miracle at that, that wedding that began the chapter, it pales in comparison because this is Jesus' church, the bride of Christ, not just united with him, but celebrating the marriage supper 
of the Lamb. By the way, they celebrated seven days. We will be celebrating for seven years. So that will be quite a celebration. Finally, Revelation 21, 1. Thousand years later, thousand plus years later, how do I know? Because in Revelation 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years. There's a millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. And in Revelation 21, after the thousand plus years, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and earth had passed away and bad news for surfers, there was no more sea. The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her heaven. Now, we've already had the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now we see the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride. And listen, it says, He hears a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's the no mores that follow. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain for the former things have passed away. There's no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I mentioned this in the introduction. The wedding took us back to Genesis 2, the lamb to Genesis 3. But the temple, it takes us prior to Genesis 1.1, perhaps to John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That could be the beginning before the beginning of things because in the future temple, Jesus himself and the Father will be the temple. And so there'll be no need for a physical temple. It will be all about them. I'm suggesting that's how it was before creation, of course. Verse 13, 23, last verse of Revelation 21 that we're covering. They had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. And the Lamb is its light. Well, we conclude here, verse 23, John 2. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. This is the purpose of the signs, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing we'd have life in his name we don't know where they are in the process. You know, many believe that Jesus is before they receive him as Lord and Savior. That's often a process. You go from being an unbeliever to being a believer, but the receiving is when you're born again and sealed with the Holy Spirit and forgiven every sin. But they're following him and listening to him and learning from him. And ultimately, those who continue will be born again. Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in a man. He knew and knows and saw and sees our hearts, their hearts, our hearts. Jesus knows what no one else can know. He breaks the hardened heart and then he heals the broken heart. I love that. 
He promises and provides a new heart, one that beats in rhythm with His, that, 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 that thinks and feels and acts and speaks the way He would and the way He does, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus knows our hearts, and one of the things He knows about them is how messed up they can be. Jeremiah 17:9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, as I said, Jesus knows it, and he offers to give us a new one. Do you realize how important it is that the Lord knows our hearts and changes them from what they are, desperately wicked, to one that beats in rhythm with his? Well, just imagine trying to navigate eternity with a heart that is constantly trying to deceive you. And if Jesus has to break our hearts to do this, it's a small price to pay to be set free from lies and deceit. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.